Father, once again we bow, and once again we come to pray for your blessing. Lord, this is your word. Its beauty and its power is uh, yours, and Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through it this morning. Lord, you would help us to look in a fresh way at that which is familiar, so that, Lord, we might not despise, but we might love and, Lord, rejoice in the message of the gospel and adore you in it. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a very interesting book a number of years ago. It was a collection of eyewitness accounts of events throughout history. Some of them were significant occasions, some were coronations, great battles, that sort of thing. Uh, Others were cultural events or rituals that have long since ceased and which you don't see any in the world any longer. And some were casual conversations or interactions with the great and the famous, the notorious and the infamous, and the ordinary and the common people of uh, history. So you get all that uh, in there. They were fascinating to me, and they took me around the world throughout human history and into all sorts of situations, not in the way that a formal history book presents the facts, but as eyewitnesses experienced these things. So you got more of the taste, more of the sound, more of the smell of the events and the experiences because they were eyewitnesses reflecting on what they have seen or what they had heard. In the New Testament, in the accounts of certain events relating to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get some of that same experience. You feel like you're there to a certain degree. You get to read in the New Testament about how the things foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament unfolded in real time, in real circumstances, involving real people's lives. And we can do this right from the beginning. When the serpent is told in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we're taken right back to the beginning. We're there in the garden. We're, We're there with Adam and Eve. And while God is speaking to them, we're hearing what God is saying in that context. From here, we can trace this promise as it develops and becomes clearer as it's more specifically tied to Abraham and then to David. We hear it in Isaiah. We can see it further confirmed there in all the prophets, but especially, though not exclusively, in the book of Isaiah. Now, I know these are familiar words, but think about what God is doing for you here with these familiar words. He's taking you into intimate circumstances and setting before you the promise that he's going to fulfill, and then he's going to allow you to read how those very things were fulfilled. So we look at Isaiah 7.14, the promise there that the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here's the promise being given. We're going to be able to go forward in time and go right into Mary's home and hear this being explained to her as she is that chosen virgin. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we get to see, we get to read about the zeal of the Lord of hosts fulfilling this promise. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, we read there, Thou shalt come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we get all of that from Isaiah. So we start out with that promise made in Genesis uh, to Adam and Eve. We come and we see it uh, sort of defined and refined in, in, in the promises made to Abraham and then the ones made to King David. And now we come to the prophecies and here we see it refined even more for Isaiah. And then Ezekiel, we read this in Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So here again, a forceful promise. This is the way this is going to happen. This child is going to be born. He's going to come into the world. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be the shepherd. He's going to be the one who's going to sit on David's throne. Then we come to the actual unfolding of those events. And when we turn to the song of Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, we hear him saying this in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant and he goes on from there so here Zechariah says what is happening now in Christ's advent in his coming what is happening now is the fulfillment of all of that that was promised before going all the way back to Genesis and now you're invited in to watch that promise come to fruition and the wonderful thing is that you're then 
carried into some very intimate places by the Spirit and the Word so that you might receive eyewitness accounts of what took place between individuals and God as these promises and all that's associated with them begins to come to pass. You need to stop and think about that for a moment because it's easy to take it for granted. You're going to be carried into very exclusive places and hear intimate conversations between God and individuals and by the word of God you're taken there. The temple to start with. The temple, none of us have ever seen the temple. We've certainly never been in it. But we get to go into it here in the, the Gospel of Luke. You get to go into the holy place of the temple with the priest, Zechariah, as he's spoken to by an angel from heaven. And you get to hear from this couple's prayers just what God intends to do with them for his own glory. We are surrounded by believers. How many other people's prayer requests do you know as intimately as you know this prayer request from this couple? Do you remember what their problem was? They were barren and they wanted a child. And you're allowed to come into the temple and with Zechariah as he's standing before the Lord and hear God say to this man that prayer request of yours about having a child, I'm going to answer it. And you get to hear Zacharias's protest too, right? Wait a minute, how can that possibly be? Both my wife and I are too old to have a child. And the answer given by the angel that with God nothing is impossible. And you get to hear that moment when that exchange is given between that couple. Given to Zacharias in particular. They're in the precincts of the temple. You get to go into the home of Joseph. While he's mulling over what to do about the situation with Mary. And you get to look in on him as he's tossing this back and forth in his mind. And then you're taken right into his bedchamber and you're told about what he was dreaming. How many people have you told about your dreams this morning? But you all know his dreams. Isn't that astounding that God would record that for you and give you the opportunity to be a witness to that? To hear what this man was, what he heard from God in that dream? And how he was told that he should take Mary to be his wife. And that he should then bring, let her bring forth that child. And he should name him Jesus. Because he'll save his people from their sins. You're taken into that moment. You're there when he wakes up and he determines to do what he's going to do. Then, of course, you're at Mary's side. You're carried to her side when Gabriel comes to her and explains to her how she has been chosen by the Lord 
to carry the incarnate Son of God to birth according to the promise of the fathers from the beginning. You're allowed by God to hear and know an eyewitness account of what transpired during the most intimate moment in Mary's life. Think of that. You're there. You're allowed to know this exchange that went on between this woman and her God in this most intimate of moments. How she will conceive by the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. And then you get to read her response, which is beautiful in Luke one thirty-eight, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You get that heat to hear, that response from her heart. Then you get to go to Elizabeth's house. You're, you're taken to these places, right? From the temple uh, to Nazareth, then to Elizabeth's home. And you're carried by the word into her home when Mary visits her cousin, the wife of Zacharias, who herself is with child. According to the word of the Lord, to her husband in the temple. And you get to hear Mary give God glory. Her hymn of praise to the Lord. Which bears witness to the fact that all of this is the fulfillment of all of that which you were told. From the garden, to Abraham's tent, to David's palace... To the days of the prophets. You get to hear that this is what is unfolding. She says in Luke 1 and verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's acknowledging this by the spirit certainly. But she's acknowledging That what is happening in me, what is happening here in this room, what what is happening as I sit here with my my cousin who is also expecting, what's happening here is the fulfillment of all that has been promised. She's carrying the one who will come in the spirit of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers to prepare the way of the Lord, and I am carrying the Messiah. And you're there while they're sharing that moment. And then you get to go with them right into the village and to peek into the most private of moments, looking in on a family just after the birth of a child. And this is no ordinary birth. This is no ordinary experience. This is extraordinary. And you're allowed to come in and to witness it and behold it. It's not just any child. It's the one promised to Adam and Eve. It's the one promised to Abraham. It's the one promised to David. It's the one spoken of by Isaiah and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and you. It's that baby. Then you get to travel back through the village with the shepherds as they rejoice and they glorify God. And we read about that in Luke 2.20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
But there's more. Because you get to stand in the throne room of Herod the Great and listen to those extraordinary characters from the East explain their mission. How many people do you think were actual witnesses to that event? I mean, were actually there when these men came in and were in the throne room with, with Herod. Well, however many courtiers he had present with him, we don't know how many there were, you're there because the Spirit carries you there through the Word and lets you see what transpired and hear what transpired. Here, you get to hear Herod plot against the Christ and deceive the visitors and go with them to the dwellings of Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem to worship the promised Savior and witness them going into the house where they saw the child with Mary his mother. You get to read about them falling down and worshiping him and then opening their treasures as they, as they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, just pause for a moment as you think about all those familiar things. And just ask, have you ever given, from a historical perspective, any thought about having such unprecedented access to these most extraordinary individuals, their lives, the locations where they were, their experiences, or their conversation. In a remarkable way, you and I can read eyewitness accounts of all the way from the first promise of the coming Messiah to the actual event. And have you ever wondered what it would have been like to be one of those praying outside of the temple when Zacharias went in there, or Zachariah went in there to do his priestly service? Have you ever thought what it would be to be one of those who was outside among the Jews praying the psalm that was prayed, and then it comes time when the priest that goes in is supposed to come out, and he doesn't come out? He's not coming out. And so you're there with that crowd mulling around saying, should we pray again? <laughs> what should we do here while you're waiting for this to happen? And then out he comes and he can't speak. He can't say anything. And everybody's certain that something extraordinary has taken place in there. You ever thought about what it would be like to be one of the people standing there? How about a shepherd? Ever thought about what it would really be like to be one of those shepherds on, on the plains and have those extraordinary events happen to you? Or, or how about a, a magi? You ever thought maybe you'd like to be a wise man instead of a shepherd? Do you ever thought about being a part of that group? Now, we may wonder about it, but though thousands of pictures have been produced depicting various scenes, and there have been tens of thousands of pageants reenacting the event, some very simple and some very elaborate, 
And though you've read this story over and over, perhaps a thousand times, depending how old you are, we can't really say that any of it is really just like being there, can we? We're reading eyewitness accounts. We're brought into very intimate circumstances. We can even be a part of the reenactment of some of these things. But with all that, it's still not the same as being there. Actually participating in the event. It's after all, even in the scriptures, other people's accounts of their experiences and their, the events that impacted their lives and not our own. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not taking anything away from the biblical accounts. Um, I may have some issues with pictures and pageants, but that which has come down to us by the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is wholly reliable, and it is wonderful, and it's a blessing that we have the opportunity to consider these things. But it still remains for you and me the record of other people's experiences. And herein, beloved, lies the great difference between the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. To his first coming, we are and will always be historical spectators who embrace and rejoice in the record of the occasion by faith. The second coming is a whole different story. You, every one of you who is a believer here this morning, will be eyewitness participants in the events. Not eyewitness recorders or or spectators, I should say, but you will be participants. And there's no way that I can possibly impress upon you the reality of that. But I pray the Lord will do so by his word and by his spirit working in you. Through the grace of God and because of your faith, your faith in the redeeming work of the Messiah, you have before you, beloved, the blessed prospect of participating in the most glorious event in human history. You're not going to be a spectator. You're going to be a participant in it. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes there in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Do you understand that you're not just going to read about that cry of command? You're going to hear it with your ears. And the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And this event, beloved, as it, as it includes you, 
Doesn't mean you're going to be sitting in an audience watching an angel dropped on a wire with a fog machine going and some pretty music being played. You're going to hear the voice of God. You're going to hear the trumpet of heaven. You yourself are going to be changed and brought into the presence of the everlasting God and the Lamb. Not as a witness, but as a participant. The realization that one is to have a part in all of these things lifts the matter of those things promised to a whole different level. If you're in Christ this morning, this is going to happen to you. This is going to be your story. And though it may not seem like a typical Advent text, consider for a moment here with me this Romans passage. You probably thought we were never going to get there, but we're there now. Romans 15, verse 8. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. You read there that Christ, first of all, is a servant. Here Paul explains the work of Christ in respect to all the promises made to the Jews concerning the Messiah. He was to come as a servant to them. Paul describes this in more detail in the epistle to the Philippians, words that are familiar to many of you. In Philippians 2.6, Paul says that Christ... Uh, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and note the words here, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the Lord sent his son, the servant, in the likeness of men. And to what purpose? Well, it was done to put on display and confirm or make the stand his truthfulness, God's truthfulness or his utter reliability in his word. The association of these things with the truthfulness of the word of God is clear. When God sent his son to be the servant, when this stump out of Jesse came and was born in Bethlehem, all of that happened, and then, of course, he went on and lived his perfect life and then offered himself as a sacrifice. All of that was done to fulfill the promise of the word. If you go to Isaiah 40 and verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And what does Paul say here in Romans? When Christ came, the glory of the Lord was revealed. That's what it was. That was the purpose of his coming. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And just as surely as Christ came that first time and the announcement was made to the shepherds and they went to Bethlehem to see this thing that was told them, you are going to see the things that are being told you about the second coming of Christ. And you're going to be a participant in those things. The angels of heaven made it clear that the birth of Christ in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of all the promises to the fathers. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel says to him, to Zechariah this is, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will, retu- he will turn many, and now he's quoting from Isaiah, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, uh, ready for the Lord, a people prepared. So here, Zacharias is being told by the angel, this is the fulfillment of God's word to Isaiah. And then Zechariah confirmed it. He says in his own song, in Luke 1.68 now, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. Mary then repeated it. She says in Luke 1.54-55, He has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul then points out, so he's saying that, first of all, this coming of the Christ as a servant is the fulfillment, or it's to put on display, and that's not even the the full sense of the idea there, it's to confirm in your minds by making it absolutely clear that God's word is fulfilled in sending this one. And then he points out that this great mercy that's going to be shown to the Jews is extended to the Gentiles. And Paul says there in verse 9 now, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, and as is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol them. Just stop and think for a moment. Those are familiar words. And it's easy just to read them over and think Paul's being repetitious. But the point is, do you have any question about the fact that when this servant came, 
he was supposed to bring this blessing not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles? You shouldn't have any question because you've just been told it three times. (laughs) When it happened, before it happened, long before it happened, you were told that it would be for your blessing, for you to have a part in as well. And what is this mercy that comes to Jews and Gentiles from God and causes them to glorify him? Well, Zechariah makes reference to it when he's praising God after the birth of his son, John the baptizer. He says in verses 76 and 79 of Luke chapter 1, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, when Paul quotes these verses about the Gentiles praising God, The first one that he uses there in Romans comes from King David. And we read it, first of all, in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And in verse 50, King David says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to God and his offspring forever. We see nations there, but you can think Gentiles when you read it. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Quote number two is more generic, and it's uh, the theme uh, of the Psalms in general, but this is Psalm 98, verses 2 and 4. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations or Gentiles. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song, sing praises. And then the third one is most likely from Psalm 117. Gresham Davis came up to me a couple of Sundays ago and said, I did some memory work during, uh, during church today. He memorized Psalm 117. He then pointed out to me that it was the shortest psalm. <laughs> Praise the Lord, all nations, or all Gentiles. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That is, praise him, all Gentiles. Make his his name to shine, lift it up. For there's no faithful love like his that endures forever. And then in verse 12, we're back in Romans now, chapter 15, verse 12, Paul quotes Isaiah. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Okay, Gentiles, what is it you're hoping for? What is your hope in him? Isn't it that he will rule over you? 
or be chief over you in this life and in the day of his return and forever? At present, we're trusting his reign as the guarantee of the forgiveness of our sins and in working all things together for our good. That's how we acknowledge him as our king. He has redeemed us. He's promised to forgive us our sins. We're, We're putting our trust in him for that promise. And then he's also promised to be working all things that transpire in our lives together for our good. And we believe that and we trust him for that. At the day of his return, we'll be trusting his reign over us so that on that day, we are either going to be gloriously raised from the dead or translated, changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now again, stop and pause for a moment and think about this. Try to put other thoughts aside for a moment. God's placed you here at this moment for a purpose. Do you, by your faith in Jesus Christ, believe you have a part in this or not? Is this your story or is it not? Look at your hands. Are those hands to be beautifully and powerfully raised from the dead? If you should die before Christ comes, on that day will these hands be raised from the dead by the power of God, by the same power with which he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You're not a witness to it. You're, it's happening to you. Is that your story? Or are they going to be wonderfully and miraculously and unbelievably changed in an instant? So that going from aging hands that get weaker. When I was playing football, I'd invariably get my little fingers stuck in the other player's shoulder pads. And then he'd move away. And so that wreaked havoc on my little fingers. Now I can't really make this one go down. So when I drink, I have to drink like this. Not because I'm being very tidy, but I can't, can't bend it anymore that way. I can't grip anything with it. And I look at these hands, and they're getting older, and they're getting weaker. I don't have the grip I used to have when I was young. All those things are happening to I believe that these hands, if Christ should come today are going to be gloriously changed into something that I can't now even fully imagine. Is that your story? Is that your expectation? I'm not talking about just the knowledge you have of it or the fact that you've read about it, like you're witnessing something that's going to happen to somebody else, but you believe it's going to happen to you because the Word of God has promised you that it will happen. And because you are Christ. That's the question here. Putting these things into into real terms together. Paul says in Ephesians 3.6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Do you, beloved, have a real expectation of being a participant in all this? As wonderful and grand as it seems. Then, says Paul in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, got to go quickly here but do those words hope and joy and peace from God sound familiar this joy and peace in believing ought to what was the angel said to the shepherds on the night of Christ's first coming the first angel that came what did he say he said fear not for behold I bring you good news of Great joy. That will be for just the Jews, all people, right? Gentiles and Jews. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then what did the heavenly host say? Suddenly there was with the angel, we're told, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace, right? Peace. Same things Paul says here in Romans. May God give you all peace. May he give it to you. And joy in believing these things. You see, it's the same message. And what is your hope and joy? Is it not that you'll not be just a spectator to the fulfillment of God's promises in that day, but a full participant in these events? That you'll be either resurrected or translated into his presence and into the fullness of his kingdom. That you'll observe from the place prepared for you by this Christ the dissolution of the earth with all that's in it. Barely noticing it as you enter into the joy of your inheritance in Christ. Is that going to happen to you? If you are in Christ... It will. If there's a real joy in this season, when we celebrate his first coming, there will be an even greater joy in that season when he comes again. And if that is indeed your expectation today, if you are truly filled with peace and joy at the prospect of having a part in it all, then I would ask you to listen carefully to Peter as we close. Because Peter says this in 2 Peter, 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things in this world are to be dissolved, and you're going to enter into all this wonderful promise of the Lord, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we aren't waiting for that (laughs) we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which dwells righteousness therefore beloved since you're waiting for these since that is your story since you are expecting to have a part in the resurrection of the translation on that day and have a part in all these things Be diligent to be found in him 
without, uh, found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says in verses 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You see, beloved, the participation doesn't begin when the trumpet sounds. It begins when we hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting. You're not waiting to be an heir of the kingdom, a joint heir with Christ. You are an heir. And it fills us with joy and with hope, and it compels us to live in holiness and godliness as a witness and a testimony to all who are around us. Let me just put it this way simply. If he has no reign over you as king now, if he's not reigning and ruling over your life now, how may you expect that he will in that day be anything but a judge? On what basis would you have that expectation? He doesn't really rule over me today. I don't really have to live in godliness and holiness today. I don't have to think about serving the Lord today and being a witness for him to the dark world around me. But boy, on that day, then there's really going to be an identification with me and and he is my king and all these wonderful things are going to happen to me. He, He is king now. He is your king. He is my king now. And the call of the word is to make that reliance on him that will allow us to be a witness in the context of our homes and the way that we deal with one another. And let's just think about that as, you, as you're interacting within your household. You're interacting with other fellow believers who are going to be changed or resurrected just like you in that great and glorious day. What kind of people ought we to be with that sort of expectation? How should we be dealing with one another? in the context of, of the, the, our families and, and, and the larger context, the world in which we live. How do we bear witness as those who have this expectation? We do it by living for the Lord who loved us and saved us and made it so that we would not just be hearers about these things, but full participants in them. What great prospects every one of you believers have. What great things are going to happen to you. What wonderful things in that day. And we'll all be glorifying God together. If you don't have a part in this hope, then you don't have a part in that day. And you will be just a witness. And it will be to your everlasting sorrow. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to hear the gospel. To see this witness from beginning to its fulfillment to the promises that lie ahead and come to Christ and eat and drink and be full of the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word this morning. 
We thank you, Lord, for the great prospect of not just reading about the things that are going to happen, but, Lord, knowing that we have a part in those things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here without that hope this morning, may they have no rest, Lord, till they find that hope. And, Lord, may all of us who do, may we be determined by your grace and, and through your power working in us, to live holy and godly lives to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us, who who came and bore our sins that through his service we might have all these wonderful prospects as believers. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Bless them to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.